That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me, as always, is the draw, the show, the money, the face, the voice, Michael Walker. How are you doing? That's me, Mike Walker. <laughs> I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, the man with the face for radio and the voice for blogging. And today we're going to talk about board games. But a number of people have a difficult task ahead of them, and I'm going to try to help them as best as possible. I'm going to be giving you little cues over the course of the episode about how I might best be misquoted and the the venues where we might best be misquoted. Because all that judgment and busy work out of misquoting us and slandering what we say and twisting what we've said on air, that must be difficult. And so when you're going to present what we've said to people who've never heard about the show, I want to give you as easy as on ramp as possible. Sounds good to me. It's award-winning content. Whatever your name is. (laughs) So, we're going to talk about board games. First, we're going to talk about the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Aurus, the game we reviewed last year. Then we're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news and why it doesn't matter, and the topic this week, which is what I'm calling meta-rules or the parateach, all the non-rule stuff you tell people when teaching someone a game or selling them a game. So, Walker, what what did we review? Is that what that was? I looked like through the dinosaur logbook. I was trying to find this parateach and that. Anyway. (laughs) Mark, exactly one year ago, we played a game called Rook, Dawn of Kiev. And it was a very interesting game with, you know, how you manipulated the market and how you manipulated when your action was going to take place and all of that stuff. But we never returned. And it even came out with another Kickstarter came out called Stone and Blade, a, a expansion. And we've yet to try that. I'm a sucker for a good action selection mechanism, and I felt that it did pre-planning rather well, uh, as compared to, say, Tricarion, where one of our beefs was the the element of pre-planning was a little bit unforgiving. Rurik had a little bit of room for improvisation, which, which I rather enjoyed. And I have to say that of the games that we frequently say, I haven't gone, haven't sought it out since, but I would happily play if it were put in front of my face. Rurik is definitely, I think, on the upper echelon of that tier. And when the Kickstarter came around for the expansion, I had a brief thought of, a, do I do I really want to say, nah, we're fine without it. But I had the thought. Yes, I came to you exactly as well and asked you, I said, did we still have that? And no, unfortunately, it has gone the way of the dodo. But yes, if you haven't tried Rorik Dawn of Kiev and you like Euros with interesting action selections and with a vague spin on maybe sort of troops on a map, but not at all troops on a map. <laughs> 
then I highly recommend giving it a shot. I thoroughly enjoyed the plays. I'd play it again if it were presented to me, but I'm not terribly verklempt that we don't have a copy anymore in the library. Yeah, the one little nice hook it had was you'd place your workers sort of on the actions that you wanted, and you'd have to get in there first to get, you know, the best way, the best, uh, I guess, the most powerful powerful version of that action. And you could, like, bump it up with money, because if you didn't, someone could go in there with a better worker and bump you down, and it would be this really interesting sort of, you know, auction mechanism slash slash something else. Would have been nice with fatter meeples, kind of like how Lancaster does it. Yeah, you'd bump, yes, Yes. knock them down, (laughs) sumo them down. Anyway, that was Rurik Dawn of Kiev by Stan Kordonsky and Peacekeeper Games. Now on to the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? We got to play, we returned to the 51st State Master Set. And more importantly, or more pointedly, the Moloch expansion. This is designed by Ignacy Trebichek and published by Portal Games. And the expansion was done by Ioana Kiyanka. And what this does is it brings in these, it, it gives it sort of a, you know, a convoy sort of feel you know there's they've got a two-player game called convoy where it has all these constructs and this is what it puts out for you puts out all these robots and stuff and you have to hack them and uh it's very interesting because you you get to bring them into your hand because the backs of the cards don't matter right so you have no idea what the actual playable part is i guess you, if you played it enough you'll get to know what they were which would be unfortunate but maybe that's what they want I'm i think that'd sure. require a significant memory investment it would but anyway so a little bit more powerful a little bit more interesting cards and uh, and if you don't take them into your hand or you just leave them out there, then they're going to start hitting everyone for different reasons in different ways. Oh, I think it's always the same reason. I think it's because they resent our puny, fragile flesh. It chainsaws so easily. It's true. I was reminded at returning to 51st State that so many of the tableau builders that were very much in vogue about three to four years ago are really manifestly inferior to 51st State in a number of ways. I think that in terms of the investment of time that you're going to get into it, you're going to get far more game, far more player interaction. Not a a mountain of player interaction, but far more than your average tableau builder. And a fair amount of interesting choices about how to manage your engine and how to manage your throughput of resources. In part because of a number of clever decisions about how aggression works, about the fact that cards, by and large, can only be activated once per round, about how you can go and take out somebody's infrastructure if they're, they're making too much money off of it, and... Furthermore, we've commented before on this podcast about how Portal Games supports its games very well, and the 51st State Master Set is no exception. Every expansion set they've released, Scavengers and Allies and Moloch, have really been excellent, and I've thoroughly appreciated what they brought to the system. And this extra deck of Moloch adversaries is, gives you precious little rules overhead and an extra little thing to do. And in point of fact, it turned out to be very consequential. It was a close game, and the winner was decided by the fact uh, that they had relied less on machine infrastructure because they are very powerful cards, but if you have too many of them at the end of the game, you're going to get a point penalty for it. And that turned out to be determinative. And it does it a little bit with uh, the player interaction as well because not only can you take them into your hand, you can just hack them and get rid of them. And that's where people can team up. So say if two players are going to take the hit of whatever the penalty is, they can sort of come to an understanding, well, I'll use these resources, you use those, and we'll get rid of this card and we won't take the hit. Even though it did not happen in our game, it's still a very interesting way to look at it. Yeah, that was a variant rule that I immediately introduced because there's precious few ways to deal with the cost challenges of 51st State Master Set, because things tend to cost some number of connections, they're called, it's the resource. And if you're short by one, well, then you just can't do it at all. 
And I did like the opportunity, uh, at least, again, theoretically, of having some output for some leftover red connections where you could cooperate and destroy something for a machine if it was hitting you too hard. As it was, though, we were playing on... There were a variety of different difficulty settings that you could play, and that would influence how many Moloch adversaries would come out. We were playing on the standard difficulty. I suspect if we were playing on the harder difficulty, then there might be more opportunity for that because there just would be more threats available, and you wouldn't be able to deal with the ones that you wanted to deal with. I, I thoroughly enjoy Fifth First State Master Set. If you're going to do tableau building, you can do a heck of a lot worse. I'm looking at you, Terraforming Mars and Wingspan, and a bunch of other Euro games. And I'll just double down on, on many of the things you said already, but because and like and Gaia Project, you said it's definitely one of these games where you're building this engine, you're accumulating these resources, and you're staying in the round longer than the other players. The better you're doing, you're getting more actions. And what it does that's very clever is that if you've already passed, you cannot be attacked. So even if these other players are doing much better than you by uh, building a better engine or uh, an engine that works better, at least you're safe from of from them. You know, just you know, amassing resources and taking you out after you've already passed. So that was fifty for state master set, specifically the Moloch expansion. I'm looking forward to yet more expansions from Portal Games in the future. And I just talked about Gaia Project, so I'll just go into that because. The app or and or the PC program or game just came do out. Do people call PC program? I do I, well, on occasion. What do the kids say, Walker? I don't know what what the in the in thing is, Mark. Well, what's canon? In, I don't know what's canon, man. You're I mean, in tune with the youth. <laughs> I, I highly doubt that. You're our official youth correspondent, right? But, but anyway, long story short, it is now on Steam, so you can play Gaia Project. Is Steam an app? Don't don't <laughs> even. Steam is the greatest thing that. God has given to this planet in quite a while. Okay. In my opinion. Anyway, long story short, now I played Gaia Project about eight times this week. I even streamed it today. And they did a fairly good job. I'm not, uh, the only thing I'm not 100% on is the iconography they've used for the buildings. They didn't use any sort of 3D sort of, it's just sort of like an outline blueprint of a building. And it's just sort of meh. Oh. But other than that, Everything's there. All the races are there. It's a great way. I found it a fantastic way to show people the game because you'll click on an action. It'll show everything. Ah. Like you'll say, I want to build a mine. Well, these are the planets you can build a mine on. You click on the planet and it'll show you the resources. This is why you can build a mine there. And the, you know, the four different ways that you can manipulate resources in order to build that mine there. So it's a great way to teach the game. It's a great way to play it much faster because it, you know, and the AI is actually very good. The other games I've streamed, I've set all the AI to maximum and, and doubled their scores. This one I've yet to even uh, win a game. Never mind. You're you just know. too good, Walker. It's not that I'm too good. It's just that the AIs are very bad. Except in Guy Project. They're very good. Guy Project was designed by Jens Drogemuller and Helga Ostertag. And now it's going to be published solely, as far as I know, by Capstone Games. It was Z-Man, but the new second edition that just came out is going to be Capstone only. For now, anyway. Well, anything that gets out of the purview of Asmodee and their terrible returns policy and or distribution is good by my book. And hopefully now that the, the digital version out, maybe we'll see a expansion coming soon. That would be Coolio. Yeah, I was just thinking the Gaia Project needed more stuff. Oh, stop it. <laughs> it's, just, it's, 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 it's already <laughs> a, a well-supported game by virtue of the base set. Well, I want to whine. Terra Mystica has two expansions. That is a good point. <laughs> On the topic of sci-fi euros, I played a game of Beyond the Sun, 
When one asks Louis what, what Louis wants to play, and Louis responds with anything other than death and destruction, well then, that's a rare occasion and needs to be commemorated. And he said he felt like something Euroy or worker placement in, so we'd already played Beyond the Sun, and I knew that there were several different options for implementation, so we played it again. I love me Beyond the Sun. I wish Board Game Arena had implemented our preferred version of playing, which is to say faction powers and the alternate technology draft. I really can't stress the quality of the technology draft enough. It gives you more control and at the same time cuts down on downtime because you get to see what's coming up. And usually, as a consequence, when people build a new technology, they know exactly what they want to go for. I also got to experiment with a very low colonization strategy because, again, one of the interesting aspects of Beyond the Sun is to what extent you pursue one of the one of the different kinds of victory conditions. I went all in for techs and hard, hardly in for colonization at all, and it turned out relatively successful. I was very pleased with how it worked, especially since both of my opponents went heavily into colonization and, in point of fact, both got the colonization achievement. And so it's always nice to be able to mix things up, and I find that digital implementations, especially with a group of people that have played the game before, is a great time to try something you don't normally try. Normally, when I play Beyond the Sun, I just try a little bit of everything, and I, I just end up being a generalist and try to snatch whatever Chivos are available. But this time, I decided to go all tech, all the time, and I had a great time doing it. Just exploring the tech tree is fun, exploring the planets are fun, Beyond the Sun is solid, and gives you lots of possible possible levers to pull that are all enjoyable on their own terms. I understand there's an expansion in the works that is going to include, among other things, a solo version. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing the system evolve. And that was Beyond the Sun. Speaking of Board Game Arena, I've been testing a lot of Great Western Trail. And they decided to implement the expansion right off the hop, so you can play it with or without. And so far, I've yet to run into a bug. And it's a fantastic system. Where is it in beta or alpha? It is in I neither. It is oh. in, in private alpha, I guess you can say. Invite-only alpha. <gasps> and it has these great windows that will pop up just on command. Like, it's a, such a well-implemented sort of thing. I've not seen it in any – maybe it's in some board game arena game that I've not played yet, but I have not seen it in any. It has this very interesting thing where you can bring your hand up or it has a picture of the hand and just has sort of like a color wheel of all the cows you have. So you don't really oh, need wow. to, Yeah, you don't need to bring it up every time. You can just look down and say, oh, I have those cows. I'm going to do that action. And it has a lot of thought put into it. I'm looking forward. I'm hoping this is going to come out for everyone to play very soon. Great Western Trail is an Alexander Pfister game, and it's designed by Eggerspiel. It's done very well. It's coming out with a second edition soon and all sorts of different versions. And uh, it's been uh, well accepted by all. We talked last week about a mod designer for Tabletop Simulator by the name of Ramun Flame, who has made truly astounding adaptations of a number of simple card games with full AI support. They've done a number of other mods that have equal levels of polish but no AI versions. For example, their mod of Bullet is really quite impressive. Although I wonder, in point of fact, it may be too good. Because in Bullet, just as a side note, Bullet is a real-time game where you are pulling tokens from a bag and slotting them in your board in the right place. Well, Ramon Flame doing what Ramon Flame does, it's now been supplied where you just click a button, and the bullet pops out and gets populated immediately where it is. And as a result, the nature of the timing is very going to be very different, I suspect. Anyway, setting that aside, I played some games of No Thanks. No Thanks was in wide circulation in Boston when I lived there, and I hadn't played it in a while, and again, I was just exploring what was available from the author, Ramon Flamen. Sure enough, No Thanks is delivered at the same level of polish as Fantasy Realms or as Fuji Flush. And the great thing about No Thanks is its brevity, but I'm, I go back and forth about, about what its qualities as an actual game, because there's lots of enjoyable tension, 
precisely because in No Thanks, the goal is not to take cards and not to take points. But if you have a run of cards, a direct run of cards, 13, 14, 15, it's, you only lose 13 points off of that, not 42. And so if you have the 13 and the 12 or the 14 pops up, you know it's, it's no skin off your back to take it. Especially if it's the 12, that's actually, that's actually losing you points, which is good. So as a result, you kind of push your luck and wait to see how good other people can make it. Because in No Thanks, the only thing that you get to do is either take the card or give up one of your chips to basically pass. But chips are good, so you want to get all the chips that are on, sitting on a card. So that 12 comes up, and everyone knows you want it. Everyone knows in point of fact that not only that you're indifferent to taking it, you actually positively want it. And you know that to everybody else, it's going to be negative points. So you say, no, 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 I'll pass for this round, hoping that it's come back to you with more and more chips. Until, of course, number one, someone calls your bluff and takes it, because possibly they have some smart idea. Or, even worse yet, number two, someone's out of chips and you don't know. <laughs> it's those moments that are really fun, and it's enjoyable, and so it's a bit of a spectacle game. It's one of the nice little bits of, you know, like at the end of an epoch of Raw, when someone's playing chicken with a chicken. It has that tension. Not heavy on the decisions, though. I mean, because at the start of a game of no thanks, a certain number of cards are burned. So if you've got the 13 and then you acquire the 15, hoping that the 14's in the deck, well, maybe it's not in the deck. Maybe when you take the 13, both the 12 and the 14 have been burned out of the deck. Maybe there's nothing you can do to make it a run. And there's not really anything you can do about that. So I've seen some people say, it's great, it's 10 minutes. And I've seen other people say... It's 10 minutes long, but it's there's no decisions to be had, really. I don't know on which side it, it, it goes on, to be frank. Well, Llama falls into that exact... Llama also just came up in board gaming, and it falls into the exact same trope, right? It's it's very exciting because, you know, you can see you're getting your cards out, and people are grabbing cards, and you're going to get out before them, and it's, and it's but you really have no decision, really. It's like you can play a card or you can't, and it, you can just run it like a solitaire game, really. Right. So I, I don't know where I said on No Thanks. It, it felt vaguely nostalgic, to be frank. And I did enjoy that element of tension because the AI, as as done in the mod for, for Ram and Flame, seems to engage in quasi-arbitrary decisions, possibly out of spite. You know, the 12 comes to them and it's got five chips on it, but the computer says, no, 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 I don't want to give it to you anyway. And then they just take it. <laughs> Which I have to say is actually kind of enjoyable and it ups the tension when playing alone. So I... No Thanks is very popular. I'll happily play it if it's, if it's put in front of me. There are there are filler-length games that I prefer. Uh, to me, filler-length is not a slur the way it is to a lot of other people. I'm just referring to how long it takes. And at least it has an element of spectacle. Unlike, say, a game of Fantasy Realms, where, you know, play a card, discard a card, and then spend ten minutes doing the scoring. So, that was No Thanks by Thorsten Gimler, published by Amigo in 2004. You and I got to return to Aquatica today, designed by Ivan Tavoski. And published by Arcane Wonders. And this is a great little tableau building combo-tastic underwater game where you get to conquer territories and hire leaders and build your deck and create very interesting combos. And it has a very nice little player board where after you've conquered a territory, you slide it into this slot and down the side of the territory has all these special abilities or extra actions you can do and it even has blank spaces that you have to sort of work around so you, you can use these at any time you sort of slide the card up and it'll show you what your next ability is or not and then you'll have other abilities that let you get rid of those empty spots and you start comboing again and then you're like me and you fill your whole tableau up and you keep conquering territories that you can't actually fit <laughs> in your board and then lose the game by just a couple of points and then wonder why you're even alive and then Walker wept, for he had no more worlds to conquer. 
I'm thoroughly enjoying Aquatica. There are a number of different kinds of games that derive a lot of their pleasure from exerting combos. This triggers off of this other thing, which leads to this other thing, and then wee! And very often, one of the ways that combo games tend to fall down is some combination of, number one, you need to know the deck, or number two, there's serious downtime, or both. And Aquatica avoids both of those pitfalls. You don't need to know the deck. You just as cards come up, you can grab them. And the locations that you conquer, and everyone conquers locations, it's one of the only ways to score points. Or it's the only one of the avenues to score points, even if you're playing with the expansion alternate scoring module. And so you just have the things in front of you, and it's just a question of efficiently managing your uses of special abilities. The only problem that I'm having with Aquatica with the Cold Waters expansion, because I, I thoroughly enjoy what Cold Waters has brought to the to the experience, is that setup is a bit obnoxious now, because the deck has become big, all the decks have become bigger. And as a result, when you're playing for a specific player account, you need to burn a certain number of cards of each suit and from each deck. And that's slightly unpleasant, especially given how quick the game is otherwise. It's very tight, it's very efficient, but having to sort and unsort all the cards over the course of the game is a bit unfortunate. Is it a price I'm willing to pay? Yes. I do thoroughly enjoy Aquatica. It is one of those games where I thoroughly enjoy the what the expansion has brought out of it, but it's not the kind of thing that I can only recommend on the strength of the expansion. So if you're at all curious, you can try it with just the base game. But skip the intro scoring scenario I would recommend. Go straight to the quote-unquote advanced scoring conditions. And that is Aquatica. Yeah, the only thing I can have against it, like I said, is the Robo Rally, Steampunk Rally sort of thing where it's heads down on your own tableau and if you're teaching it to new players they might be doing things that they're not supposed to and the printing's so small so you never you have to keep track of what everyone's doing be a bit of a pain and it would detract from my gaming experience mark walker's extremely polite he's accusing me of cheating it's a lie and i said when teaching new players that's why <laughs> when we play two player i think that's when it it fully shines <laughs> that was aquatica cold waters by ivan tazovsky and arcane wonders we played another game of The Initiative by Corey Kaneska and Unexpected Games. The Initiative has now fully revealed itself to be a combination of two different elements. It is the awkward marriage of a cipher decoding, code breaking, vaguely puzzly kind of association, escape boxy, unlock kind of thing, conjoined with a rather tedious card play exercise. The scenarios themselves. Uh, I don't find engaging enough. They're very, very, very simple. And simple is not necessarily a slur, but it doesn't really do anything past the mechanical elements. And so when I'm playing a scenario of the initiative, I don't I don't feel engaged. I don't feel like I have interesting trade-offs. And ultimately, it, it's just a rote, repetitive experience of reveal some tiles, go get the tiles, reveal some tiles, go get the tiles. Between scenarios, you start to see some cleverness here and there, some flashes of inspiration. Nothing that is earth-shattering that hasn't been done before by, again, by the Unlock games, by various legacy games. But nonetheless, some cute little tricks that play around with the fundamental board game formula. You know, I don't really like puzzles and ciphers and word substitutions and figuring out these weird little codes and things like that. But if you are inclined towards that, then I suspect the initiative might have more to grab you. And if you find the fundamental card play to be less tedious than I do, then certainly this might be your cup of tea. As it is, I'm done with the initiative. We've put in five plays of it. It introduced new rules after the previous game we played. We won't go into details because it's spoilers. But even that, I didn't feel like it added significantly to the formula at all. The cipher stuff is cute. The, the, the word jumble stuff is occasionally clever. But it's just really not my bag. Yeah, it's very 
drab. I, I'm wondering if it would be an interesting gateway legacy game, right? Because most legacy games mean that, you know, you've played the base game a ton and you're ready to take it to the next level where this is just sort of right off the hop. This is sort of a new game and legacy elements at the same time. So maybe, who knows? Yes. You and I also got to play a Chris Cheslick game called Good Puppers. A terrible title. Because I know there was better ones, so I've heard anyway. This is published by Asmati Games. It was originally One Deck Doggos, and then it was All the Goodest Puppers, and now it is Good Puppers. I don't think the Good Puppers is a terrible title. No. I think we need to get this guy a Puppers. So in this game, you're creating these very interesting combinations with your cards. You're creating these columns that let you start turning your bones and getting to score more and trying to you know, work the best engine that you can. It's also a very, very quick tableau builder with minor elements of drafting. It doesn't feel a whole lot like 51st State Master Set, but they have some structural similarities. And again, tableau building has been done literally thousands of times in the Eurosphere in various ways, but I don't see the appeal of the incredibly long bloated ones, and I don't see the appeal of the incredibly simplistic ones when they last, you know, 60 to 75 to 90 minutes. I would rather there be slightly more meat on the bones, but it still get in and out in around 90, as in the case of something like 51st State, or it have some interesting combo uh, potential and be cute and delightful like Good Peppers, which is, you know, solidly 30 to 45 minute length game. But at the same time, you have some considerations about how to trigger your abilities, when to trigger them, what cards to go after in a pseudo auction system and so forth. In terms of full disclosure, I'm personal friends with Chris Cheslick, the designer and publisher, and I did play it in pre-publication versions, but I have to say that the published version, I think, is significantly better than the, the versions that I tried, even though, as I say, the title has undergone changes for the worse. And this one's much drier than than previous versions. <laughs> Walker's making a reference to the fact <laughs> that there was some suspicion that at some point it can, the, the original shipment of Good Peppers fell off the container ship and sunk to the bottom of the sea. It has since been recovered, in point of fact. That is Good Puppers. Now on to Lost Ruins of Arnak. We talked about it a long, long time ago, but I've been... <laughs> and this is, you know... The dawn of time. Exactly. This is this is new board Several game. Several months ago. That game's two weeks old. We're not playing that anymore. <laughs> Believe it or not, we replay games. And I've been playing Lost Ruins of Arnak on Board Game Arena. And I've had to re... There's an, there's an action mark that I think that I'm not choosing it's called the rain of resources like where <laughs> where you get a shower of all these resources i'm just bad at this game i think i, I need to reevaluate how i play because all, all every all of my opponents zoom up up the tracks and hmm. and i'm down wallowing in my in my rock sweeping painful anyway need to play it more want to understand why i'm not good at it Lost Ruins of Arnak still has not changed, you know, what I felt about it before. It, it It's fine, but nothing to write home about. Worth a quick online game, but not necessarily more. Is exactly. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go all out to repurchase it or bring it back onto the table, but I don't mind playing it on Board Game Arena. This is put out by CGE and designed by Elwyn and Min. Played another game of Unmatched, specifically the Cobble and Fog set. When Unmatched first came back, uh, came out, and the original starter set was Battle of Legends Volume 1, Unmatched was sort of seen as a spiritual successor to the Epic Duels system that had been released back in the day, originally as Star Wars, and then rethemed as Transformers. And this time it was going to be public domain characters using roughly the same kind of conceit. A single fighter, 
either alone or with some backup or sidekick character or characters, would engage in single combat with a card-driven combat system. On paper, this is exactly my bag. This is one of those times where this is a game for Mark, where I play it and I remain strangely unmoved. And I had a number of specific complaints about Unmatched when I first tried it, among them that I felt that the cards played you rather than the other way around. Walker, I think, is fair to say, exercises this complaint more often than I do, but in this case, I very much agreed. I I didn't feel that the hand management really worked out terribly well. If you had a good attack card, you went and played it more or less. There were... There were some considerations of timing with respective abilities, but another salient problem I had with Volume 1 was that of the original four characters, one of them, specifically King Arthur, there's a solid consensus that he's not particularly good. Some people disagree, and they swear up and down that the, the, the basic set is balanced. Since then, there have been a number of other sets released, and the system has evolved in ways that, in terms of intellectual property, I don't necessarily appreciate. One of them is, Marvel poisons everything, and so inevitably there was going to be unmatched Marvel sets. Doesn't move me at all. And there was also a Buffy the Vampire set, and a lot of people seem to assert that the characters in Buffy are underpowered when compared to the rest of the cast. So, didn't really inspire confidence, but a number of people swore up and down that Coblin Fog was a great set, really solid, well-balanced, and a great reintroduction to the system. So, played Coblin Fog, specifically we played the Invisible Man against Sherlock Holmes, and it didn't strike me as particularly better than when I first died. I saw the same complaints, still the same problems with it, and here added to it, See, a lot of what Cobble and Fog comes down to, very much like a lot of the rest of the Unmatched sets, is cancelling abilities at the right time. Which is fine. If you really like to get into double think about, ooh, when is this going to be cancelled, or this other thing going to be cancelled, when can my big attack be not cancelled, that doesn't really do it for me. And if I have cool abilities, I would rather they actually get to go and do cool things, rather than, ah, oh, your card doesn't work, oh, your card doesn't work for this thing. And there's lots of cancellation back and forth. And so when it comes to skirmish-adjacent type things, I think that there are many, many superior offerings, albeit not necessarily ones that are being as supported as prolifically as Unmatched. But if you want one that has a lot of characters from a lot of different fictional contexts, I would quite frankly rather play this Funkoverse game. Yeah, that's what I was going to bring up, but you just wanted to keep on talking. I believe think <laughs> I really thought Funkoverse did all of this much better. And a lot of the MOBA games that we've been playing as well is the same sort of concept of being back and forth two-player games. And I think it just does all of this much better than than Unmatched does, whereas you're looking at a small handful of cards and you're constantly bleeding for cards or you're endlessly just taking move actions and not moving just so you can replenish your hand. I agree. Funkoverse, I would rather play a relatively obscure game called Titan's Tactics, which is also a small skirmishy thing. For What Remains was is, is a, a skirmish game par excellence. I mean, there again, you're not talking about one-on-one duels. If it's the one-on-one duel card-driven thing you're specifically going after, well, then now we're starting to get more into the MOBA-style arena. But even that, that's not that's not one-on-one. But I, I, I love skirmish and skirmish-adjacent games, but for some reason, Unmatched never really moves me. It's okay. I don't dislike it. It's just I don't feel like I'm making good decisions. I often feel like my cool abilities are just getting canceled for unpredictable, in unpredictable ways that I couldn't foresee. And other than the fact that it, it re-implements the brilliant Tannhauser line of sight system, I don't really think Unmatched brings much to the table. Yeah, you, you didn't really get a chance to use it because they had the same problem with Street Fighter, where it had this very beautiful map, had all the stuff there, but movement was so arbitrary, it didn't really matter because you were moving all the time anyway. Well, posi- okay, posi- here I'll defend it a little bit. Positioning mattered, mattered a little bit because... 
by virtue of the special abilities of my character, the Invisible Man, he put out these fog things, and a variety of abilities only triggered if the fog was in the right kind of place with respect to either myself, the practitioner, or you, the target. And so I did have to worry a little bit about positioning there. But again, there were cards that I could play that would just rearrange the map in, the, in whatever way that I wanted. And so... Even that wasn't leveraged to the extent that you might necessarily like. And that was unmatched. And lastly for me, we played Oath, Chronicles of an Empire and Exile. This is by Cole Worley and published by Leader Games. This is Leader Games' next big title. And there's not much to say after just one play with a game like Oath. There's a lot going on. PAX Premier vibes going on with many different ways to win and it, and they evolve. It's not as though it's, you know, set at the beginning of the game with, you know, different avenues. It sort of will, you know, slowly transform depending on what you do and some people, you know, get new objectives and different goals and overall I'm looking forward to more plays of Oath. What did you think, Mark? I think that having discussed the entire set of works by Cole Worley, so Cole Worley has designed a fair number of games by this point, and I think it's fair to say that Root is the odd one out. Not in the sense that it doesn't feel like a Cole Worley game, but it is by far the most accessible, by far the most mainstream in its sensibilities. I don't mean this as a pejorative, I just mean that it seems the most calibrated for widespread success and accessibility. Oath, on the other hand, feels a lot more like some of his other games that are more, I'm going to say, in kind of the Hollenspiel idiom. Amabel Holland is very clear that the games that she publishes are not meant to be mainstream, they're not meant to be accessible, they're meant to be sticky and weird and fragile and alienating in a lot of ways. And I don't necessarily endorse this design philosophy all the time, and I don't think that Cole Worley's games are deliberately alienating by any stretch of the imagination, but Oath and Root, despite the fact that they were published by the same publisher, done by the same designer, and have the same artist and a lot of the same visual touches, could not be more different in terms of their appeal, in terms of their intended audience, and in terms of their oral feel, as far as I can see. Again, this is one play, uh, but I can see why Oath has already been very divisive amongst a number of people who maybe went and supported it and decided to pledge on a Kickstarter because they were looking for another thing like Root. I am hoping that we start to get a little bit more flavor out of it. It felt like a very mechanical exercise in our first game. And I am hoping also that the reports of length going down with subsequent plays are true. Like, like it, it is often said, and it says in the rulebook, to its credit, oh, it says your first game is probably going to take around three to four hours. And that was roughly how long it took us for our first game with, with four. It also says very, very strongly, don't play your first game with five. This is excellent advice. Heed that advice. We know that rulebooks usually lie to us. And we are usually the first to agree and tell you that the rulebook lies to you. Here, the rulebook does not lie to you. <laughs> Don't play with five, budget three to four hours at least, and be prepared for something weird if you want to get into get into Oath. A lot of counterintuitive stuff. I, too, am looking forward to more plays, and we will absolutely keep you posted. Those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, it seems like the new Nemesis stuff from the second, second Kickstarter is now reaching their backers, so now we have all sorts of interesting stuff to talk about. So have you noticed the new Robotech Reconstruction game? <laughs> I actually talked about the Robotech Reconstruction game back when it was announced. It is now available for pre-order, and it looks like they're getting their ducks in a row. This appears, not entirely unlike Root, to be a kind of riff on the coin formula as popularized by GMT in the unfortunately borderline unplayable coin games. And it is an adaptation of a specific period during the Macross saga where humanity was basically trying to rebuild itself with the their, their former enemies. And as a result, 
every faction has a minor ally, a minor enemy, and a major enemy. And I quite like those dynamics in theory. They often don't play out in point of fact, but I will definitely be curious about playing it. Of course, I will insist when playing it to refer to the characters by their original Macross names, possibly confusing and alienating everyone around me, but that's not new for me. I'm starting the timer, just so you know. Sure. You're done? I'm done. Okay. You asked. (laughs) I also saw some information on Pandemic to Ride. It's a new... European. It seems that they're just going to hit all the countries now. Before we had, we had North America, now we're going to have Europe. So let's just go down the list. And they seem to think, well, Ticket to Ride can do it. Why can't we? So a new pandemic coming out. Hot Zone Europe. So Matt Calkins, the designer of Sekigahara, which is a truly fascinating two-player war game for GMT, has designed a race game. Now, racing games we've commented in the past we often have difficulty with because they often end up being too slow and too bogged down, but Matt Calkin says that Charioteer, his sort of Circus Maximus chariot racing game, plays in about an hour, and it looks like it has some interesting card-based elements. It's going to be coming up on the P500, GMT's pre-ordering system, in not too long. I, for one, am very much looking forward to it because, the, as I said, Sekigahara was so fascinating, I'm looking forward to anything that Matt Calkins does. And if he's able to make a compelling and fun chariot racing game, well, that would probably be pretty much the first. As I say, back in the before times, this is the before-before times, back when there was dirt, the chariot racing games were like the big convention draw. For Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. Just hitting the market now from Osprey Games is the deck builder by David Tertze and Nigel Buckle, namely Imperium Classics and Imperium Legends. Between the two of them, you have 16 different asymmetric civilizations that you can play as. I, for one, am very much looking forward to seeing it for a number of reasons. Among them, it is now legally mandatory that David Tertze be a co-designer on every single release ever. If a game is published without David Tertze's involvement, I understand you are to be fined. And the design combination of Tertze and Buckle are the same two people that are going to be doing the next release by my Clash Games, one of our favorite publishers here at Swag. I will, however, uh, note a minor gripe. I am sick to death of games involving the word Imperium in the title. It is getting difficult to search for them. Imperium the Contention, Dune Imperium, Imperium Classics, Imperium Legends, Twilight Imperium. It just, no, no more. Imperium Imperium? Yeah, we need, we need to stop. It, it got so bad that somebody helpfully tried to point out on the guild the plural of Imperium, uh, it, dusting off their Latin abilities. I don't mess with Latin. Latin is too complicated, and you always fall into these weird minefields of the genitive and strange other declensions. And, ugh, don't get me started. Anyway, that's Imperium Classics and Imperium Legends. And lastly from me, Mantic Games is coming out with another big Kickstarter, Rainbow Six, the board game. It's going to be called Six Siege. So another crazy miniature, but it's not It's not going to be like this open map type thing. I looked at the, the pictures. There's like this closed board game type thing with little scenic, you know, things that you're going to put on it. It might be interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing the Kickstarter page. Six Siege by Mantic. Finally, for me, this is news that we've been alluding to and then fully announced in our most recent newsletter. I am going to be spending a year away from Kingston uh, for family reasons that all told are probably good. This is not relevant. What is relevant is the impact that it's going to have on the podcast. So starting in July, in the early bit of July, we're going to have to skip a couple of episodes. We're going to have some bonus content available, probably for you you find people as well as uh, for patrons. And we are also going to be returning to remote recording when I am in Vancouver. So suffice to say, if you're in Vancouver and you can help me integrate myself with the uh, gaming community and or lie about my character, that would be very much appreciated. And uh, details to follow on the Western expansion of So Very Wrong About Games. We'll take it all over. (laughs) I just want to make sure that we're all clear. 
that swag will go on no matter what. After two weeks, we will be back to recording every week. So everything will be business as usual. Do not worry. All will be good. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is meta rules and the parateach. Walker, do you know how the term metaphysics got coined? I do not. So Aristotle wrote the physics and they decided how to classify his other work, which was related to the physics and didn't have a title. They put it next to the physics. Meta meaning next, next. to. So metaphysics got its title literally by the fact that they put the metaphysics next to the physics. Not, not quite the physics. Yeah, not exactly the physics. Yeah. Something else. Something adjacent to the physics. Orthogonal physics. So this is all the non-rule stuff that you need to tell people when teaching or selling a game. Because Walker wanted to have a discussion, I think, and I think this is going to be a good one, about categorization. About why people categorize games in a certain way. And this is often something that comes to mind when we're trying to define a taxonomy or something, and then people endlessly want to quibble about it. But it's also relevant when people ask you the most fundamental question about a game. What kind of game is it? Which itself is a loaded question. We can get into that later. And one of the things that you pointed out, Walker, is that some people just refuse to categorize games. Yes, and this is this has come up because of Oath, and my th I just really feel that Oath is a much heavier game than people think it's going to be because of of you know Roots come out by Leader Games, and then they brought out Fort, and now Oath is by out. Kyle Fern, yeah, yeah, it's the, the art def by Carol, Kyle de Fern. Yes, definitely all or two different designers, but all by the same artist. So right. maybe they might get the wrong impression about what Oath is, and if you do not explain to them right off the hop what it's going to be, it might lead to them having a bad experience. How would you seek to present it as such, then? You just have to make sure you get the right group. You don't force anyone. You should know the type of players that you're going to bring in. You let them know how crunchy it's going to be, and... And then they'll not have such a bad experience. But what about the before times? What about the after times? Do, do you remember what it's like to play games with strangers? Or play games with people, not even necessarily strangers, people you know on a first-name basis, but you wouldn't be able to say off the top of your head what kind of games they like necessarily? See, that's one of the things that I think is, has become fascinating with the sort of myopia of gaming during COVID times. I mean, strangely enough, most of it's online, but by the same token, it seems to have contracted the social circle, <laughs> at least in our case. True, but when I think back about at either convention or gaming nights, there'd be those people that are wandering around from table to table trying to to figure out what game they want to play. Right. And if I remember the three the three second to three minute pitch that there were, it'd be a lot of comparisons to other games. Sure. This is just like this game in this part of or it's just as complicated this mm. or or it's very complicated, you know, it's going to be about, you know, 30-minute teach, or, you know, we definitely tell them how long the game's going to be, because in a lot of those gaming nights, people feel as though they can show up for half an hour and then leave right after. That seems to be a common problem sometimes, so you make sure they know this could go up to eight hours, depending on how many people join the table. Okay, so then here, let me let me narrow my question. So you've talked about comparing games to other similar games when doing this presentation. On what metric? So say you had to walk up to a bunch of strangers, right? And they didn't know Oath from anything. Let's assume that they had excellent knowledge of the hobby, but had never heard about Oath. Just, and I'm just picking Oath as a random example, because you're right. It's, it's an odd beast. On what basis would you compare it to things? My personal way I do it is just the vibe of the entire game. Okay. Right? You know how sometimes I compare 
games and and people go off and I'm sometimes I'm just talking about one little part of the game or just the general feel of the game mm-hmm. not the actual mechanism not the actual gameplay just how the overall feel like I the game finishes like oh that almost felt like a, another game I played you know it's like that it's different mechanically but the overall vibe and the length and just the fe- the girth of the game the girth the girth I see okay because when it comes to feel and vibe I can definitely understand that because sometimes your comparisons for example a comparison you made in person and repeated over the show was that to you 51st State Master Set feels like Gaia Project in a certain way and that's not how I would normally conceptualize things I primarily and this I'm not saying this is a better way to do it it's just the way that I naturally conceptualize things because it's very alienating to some people I would compare 51st State Master Set to something more like Wingspan or, again, to Terraforming Mars. Those the, That would be the natural class. Ta- card-based tableau builders where you're trying to exert various cards to, to, to get a score at the end of it. So not really feel-driven. True. It could, and could, that could be bad on my part. Maybe some people don't see games the way, same way I do. Like, I see games like those two games where you're, you know, like I already said, accumulating resources, trying to stay in the round, trying to get the most out of your tableau and the game. And they both sort of do that. So it gives you that same feel throughout the game. I think the possibility of misunderstanding is inevitable, though. The classic example for me, and this is something that I mentioned before, was when I tried to ex- – part of this is, was foreseeable based on this person's enthusiasm. I was trying to introduce Through the Desert to somebody who I knew played Go. And so I, uh, I actually suggested Through the Desert because th- Through the Desert has been compared to Go, uh, to multiplayer Go, by a number of people. And so she was very enthusiastic and we played the game. And, and, and over the course of the game, I could tell she was getting more and more disappointed. Because trying to leverage somebody's enthusiasm for an existing property is difficult. And then after the game, was like, so what do you think? She said, this is nothing like Go at all. And I said, really? It Well, it's got, it's an abstract with gradual encroachment and territory encirclement. And she said, yes, but you never remove anyone else's pieces. And everyone else at the table just sat and thought for a while and said, well, I mean, that's true, but I guess, I guess that's what you really like about Go, I guess. Yes. <laughs> and... It's impossible to tell. I used to think back when I, I first got started in the hobby that it was it was just a matter of cracking somebody's formula and then I'd be able to understand what games they might like. I've given up. I don't recommend games to anybody anymore except on in podcast terms where I can do so in general. But even people I know very, very well, I have no earthly idea. Like, I can tell, for example, that some games you're not going to like. But I have no basis to, to predict what you're, what's strongly going to appeal to me. And as a result... Uh, I've mostly abandoned that element of the explanation of the game. I only try to leverage comparisons not to get people enthusiastic, but only so as to facilitate understanding. Oh, that's that's another note I have here is like, sometimes think about why you're doing this. Are you doing this because you've picked the wrong people and now you're trying to, you know, hype them up or mm-hmm. trying to get someone who's a bad fit for the game, you know, warm them up or soften the blow of what you know they won't enjoy? Yeah, as, as a consequence, especially when it comes to people who I who aren't necessarily part of the, the core gaming group who are willing to forgive me for almost any gaming ill. Like if I put something in front of you or Huey or possibly even Dewey, although it's a little it's a little, it doesn't matter how bad it is, they'll forgive me, and they won't necessarily think that I have bad taste. Part of this is because we've done a relatively good job of basically making them employees of the podcast. But part of that is also I think because you have a certain degree of credibility. But when it comes to people, again, I might know them on a first name basis, but if I don't, if they, I don't have a long experience gaming with them, I'm going to be much more careful about what I put in front of their face. True. And then we sort of talked about it in another episode where when you set certain things up about the game, it might mislead them on yes. on parts of the game or steer them 
in a direction that that they wouldn't have gone in normally. They could have, you know, flushed out different parts of the game or proved your ideas wrong by doing it another way. But you've said something now that will now skew them in a certain way towards the game. Well, that's one of the, we, we've talked about before the the the, the trap of giving people strategy advice That's during right. a rules explanation. Yeah. Similarly, a, a related phenomenon which I've been paying more and more attention to and which I find immediately starts getting my back up is when people start spending too much time talking about what happened last game. And they're like, oh, well, you know, last time this, that, and the other thing happened. So therefore, and it's like, well, you know, we're only playing, we've only played this twice. So let's not assume that future perform- future outcomes will be driven by past performance. And furthermore, especially if there's a new player there, I don't want them to necessarily think that that is the way things are going to happen. So all I got left now is a whole bunch of phrases that are used in this particular junction, Mark. Like, you won't get this on your first play, so, <laughs> so don't worry. Next time you'll do much better. Sure. I, I, I especially find it helpful in the context of encouraging people not to feel too badly if they lose. Anything someone can say as someone who's more or less running the game show to make them feel okay with a loss, whether or not the game is, is particularly tricky on a first play, is good. And I think that's a good phrase. You really need to know the cards to understand. Yeah. I don't know, man. A little bit with uh, Twilight Imperium. Twilight Struggle. Twilight Struggle. <laughs> See the Imperium problem again. Yes, it's, now it's in my head. Yeah, I mean, it, it's true. I mean, okay, for Twilight Struggle, you have to say it, right? But I'm very, very loath to do it in other cases. Well, a lot of fighting games are like that, right? Such as? The fighting deck games, you know, where you really need to know if you want to counter, you really need to know what's in your deck, what you have a chance of drawing, what your big power move is, you know, how you're going to counter the other player's you know power move. You really need to understand how your deck works, and you're really not going to get that on the first play. Eh, I don't know. Sometimes I feel that's overblown, but I suppose you're right. And then sometimes they say, well, you make sure you find the balance. You need to know when to switch over. Like a lot of these games, you know, you're building your engine and then you got to switch over to start generating victory points and that type of thing. So you sort of, you know, soften the blow there. Well, this is one element of uh, the sort of meta rules that I think far too few rule books do and is an exception to my general pattern of trying not to tell people strategy advice or, you know, what happened last game. I think that many games should do a slightly better job of communicating how many rounds a game might be apt to last. Now, some games are fixed length. That's fine. Whatever. Even then, sometimes it can be a little bit deceptive, especially if the, if the, if the rounds ramp up, especially. But I'm thinking particularly of games like two of my favorite heroes, Senji and Tribune, both of which last a lot less time than people think are going to last for different reasons. Uh, but most, of, but both of them have the same effect of a sort of spiraling of victory conditions. Like Tribune, you're just either satisfying victory conditions or not. And in Senji, you're scoring points. But both of them is like very few points or uh, very few victory conditions are being satisfied. Very, very few, very, very few. Oh, look, all of them coming at once. And it can be very, very daunting as a new player to make certain assumptions about how long the game is going to last in terms of rounds and then be completely blindsided. And so one of the things that I do when teaching Tribune and Senji both is this will last a lot less time than you think it is. And I try to remember a specific number, like, you know, four to five rounds. And that honestly, I think, is one of the most helpful elements of, of the meta rules that can really help situate people. Sometimes... I wish I could communicate this more, but ultimately you have to throw up your hands and say, ah, you just got to kind of feel it out. The example that comes to my mind in this case is Raw. 
you have to be able to feel out the tempo of the game and figure out how long the epoch is going to last and when you can go all in and when you have to save it. There's no quick heuristic that I've, I've ever been able to see with respect to being able to feel out things like that. Yeah. I have all three of those points here. It's like, uh, careful. It's going to be over. It's going to be over sooner than you think. Yep. Uh, it's going to ramp up really fast. So be ready for it. Yep. All of those things. I also have, uh, Things, some of these have bled slightly into the rules explanation, which is a shame, but that's okay. If you lose, if you use that action, you're losing the game. We've seen this come up in, you know, some circumstances <laughs> where it's sort of like, hey, hey, you've put, you've backed yourself into a corner yeah. and they've given you this out of the. I, I prefer, I, I, I don't like if you use this action, you're losing the game. I prefer this almost never happens. Yes. And this, this is often in cases of games that are, are kind of. I tend to associate it as a bit of a design flaw, actually. And I think primarily of Martin Wallace games. In a lot of Martin Wallace games, there are a variety of actions available that really you should never be in a position to do. <laughs> in Byzantium, you should never tax. It's just, it's it's almost an ironclad, uh, ironclad rule. And I, I, I've seen you do it a little bit more aggressively. Like, for example, in the context of Whale Riders, I've seen you explain the game, and one of the actions you can do in Whale Riders is take a dollar. And I've seen you say, if you take that action, you're losing the game. I think that's too strong, personally. Well, it's sort of like maybe hinting at the fact to make sure they know that it's not something that you, you want to be working your engine so you don't have to do that action. Well, then you should put it, say it that way. It's then. not as funny. Okay. Um, <laughs> Jade is a lie. <laughs> you won with Jade last time. F- fun is a you re- lie. You redeem. Okay, sure. Fun is a lie. It's true. Uh, it's a conspiracy invented by Hasbro to, to move product. The game is simpler than it sounds. Sure. And then it's all these ones about careful will be over sooner when you think about all those <laughs> other ones. Uh, sometimes you're trying to build excitement for a game that just sounds dull. Like if it's like a, like a historical game or or a stock manipulation game. I love or, historical games. Yeah, historical games historical get me stock manipulation games. Okay, yeah, well. That's, that's your thing. Ooh, I know. a game about the Teapot Dome stand yes, the scandal. Yeah, there was already a game about Tulipomania. <laughs> so, yeah. So, if you're trying to get people excited for that, you'll have to build it up right from the beginning because, man, will that peter out quick. <laughs> Okay, well, let's talk about historical themes, because I've been been thinking about this lately. So a number of people in the board game sphere have decided to stop playing game, or decided to stop, or have never wanted to play games about colonialism. I'm not there. I don't think you're there either. We're we're willing to play games with colonialism. But I think that it's, I need to be a little bit more upfront, because my assumption is, and I think it's it's well-earned, that when it comes to Euro game, you're probably going to lead with the mechanisms. And so if somebody says, if I'm trying to sell somebody on a game, it's like, what kind of game is this? Oh, it's an auction game. And they're either in the mood for an auction game or they're not, and that's fine. But if it is just an unapologetic, old-school Euro rendition of colonialism, like, again, my favorite game is in this genre is probably Empire's Age of Discovery, which is just a straightforward, here come the, the, the colonialists to come subjugate the, the quote-unquote new world. Uh, I, I think I need to do a better job uh, of saying, well, it's a really good worker placement game, but it's unapologetically colonialist. So at least people know what they're getting into. And if it's a GMT game, they're definitely not leading with the box. It's like one of those games where you sort of like bring it from under the table with the lid already off, and then you just sort of like start putting out the pieces without letting them see the cover. I hate you so much. And uh, <laughs> so so you could be preparing them for a conceived flaw that you've seen in the game, like be careful of this certain card, be careful of this odd rule, uh, or an overpowered action, that kind of thing. Yeah, and again, I think there it's, it's a question of balance. You don't want to let past games determine the destiny going forward, but you can... So, so it's a question of pointing it out, but passing it off is no big thing. It's like, 
sometimes it really is a huge deal. Like if you're playing first edition St. Petersburg, you know, the Mistress of Ceremonies is a huge deal. <laughs> like, there's no two ways about it. But by the same token, there's a natural tendency, and it's 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 just a standard part of human reason. If it was consequential to winning the game in the first game, you're probably going to think it's overwhelmingly powerful when in future games it might not matter at all. It's true. Then explaining that a scenario is unbalanced or that's the starting quest or it's somehow not as good as to what's to come, right? We've said this many times in the, in the before. You know, first scenarios or first quests are very lean towards the players winning. So you can sort of explain, you know, you know, we're definitely going to win this, but don't worry, it's going to get harder later on. Yeah, that's another element of the meta rules that I think really ought to be part of the game manual. We've talked a lot about the necessity of having a good first experience with a scenario-driven game. And I really wish that games would do a slightly better job. There's some that do it okay. Cloud Age comes to mind that was very clear about, all right, so there's a learning scenario you can do. If you're comfortable with a little bit more mechanisms, you can skip straight to the scenario and improve those rules. And I, I really wish more games would do that, especially when the first scenario is kind of a downer. Uh, and it's it can, it can be really unfortunate. Oath did a really good job of trying to give you lots of different ways into the game. Like I remember uh, at the beginning of the Learn to Play document, of, well, of which there are two, technically. It says, well, you know, if you generally play simpler games like Settlers of Catan or Pandemic, you should learn the game this way. If you like heavier games like Twilight Struggle, you should learn the game this way. And I'm like, that's an awful lot of distance between those two pulls. Uh, I, I, I kind of wish there was a little more flesh in the middle. So I ended up just reading all of it, you know, twice over. But I, I, I applaud the effort. Again, not telling you how the game is played in the sense of this is really what you need to be doing or this is the card you need to pay attention to, but just more meta-texture about how the rules are to be presented and internalized, especially for a first play. So I only have two left. One is into the rules a bit more, but that's okay. How important early decisions are and how they affect the rest of the game or how front-loaded the beginning of the game is, something like a uh, food chain magnet where it's like, okay, you know, here are these milestones you know, do right. not disregard those. Or even or even just set up in Settlers of Catan. That's right. Yeah, where you're going to place your initial guy, things, make sure you emphasize where that is. Or set up in Through the Desert, yeah. And the last part is sort of keys into that as well, is make sure sometimes the components can be misleading. Like 100%. When you're, when you're setting stuff up, they might feel as though it's one type of game, and you got to make sure that you tell them that, no, like I know these are giant stompy mechs, but you know yep. the combat is not that important in this game. Yeah, Scythe is a good example. The other example that we talked about a lot is Imperial. And that's the first thing I always do. First of all, when you when you explain Imperial, I never say whether it's Imperial or Imperial 2030. I never say, you know, this is a game about World War One or this is a game about a, a, a near future war. I say, this is a stock game. And then you lay out the pieces and everyone's like, oh, cool. I'm like, if you play this like a Troops on a Map game, you will lose and you won't have fun. <laughs> more, perhaps more yeah. importantly. And like right at the beginning, I'm going to give you India, but you're not India. <laughs> Just yes. so you know. Yeah, exactly. And again, that, that's a case of the components generating expectations that you as someone presenting the game have to undermine aggressively. Now, in the case of, uh, of a relatively simple Euro game, uh, and I would include... Well, not relatively simple Euro game, but a relatively rules light Euro game. We're not talking about a thirty-page manual or anything that, that I, like that, which I would actually include both Imperial and Scythe under that category. The rules are, are pretty straightforward. They do a pretty good job of communicating to the player 
that combat is not going to be the be-all be and end-all of things. At least that was my recollection of, of first reading the rules. But yes, that is one of those things that as a rules explainer, you absolutely need to convey down and probably after having played a couple times, need to emphasize. Again, not to discourage combat. Both of those games have combat. You need to fight to win in many instances, although inside you can win without fighting. So can we talk a little bit more about theme? Because this is something I'm actually curious about. Because uh, I want to hear yes. your impression. Because this is one of those areas where you do a much, much better job at Welcome to Naviri. Such as Welcome to Naviri. <laughs> I've actually started making, I have my own version. Anytime there's interior art on any box cover, I thrust it in sort of somebody's <laughs> face and I say, Welcome to Naviri. Because Walker was so good at doing that when teaching us title plates. I often find that I, even in non-Euro games, I just skip the thematic explanation entirely. And it's a bad habit. I mean, it, it, I think it's just my, my Euro gamer roots. Yeah, I think we are definitely on both on different pages when it comes yeah. to that part of the game. I really enjoy the theme and how the mechanisms, you know, bring that out and how you can sort of have a, an overall experience and sort of, uh, you know, sort of lose yourself in that whole experience. I mean, I do. I, I do that sometimes, too, as a player. I'm just bad at setting people up for that kind of experience, which is unfortunate. I expect unreasonably that it is just going to emerge always from every gameplay. And I was, I was again thinking about the ways that rule books communicate this through the, through the meta rules. And I was actually thinking about one of the ways in which I find Cosmic Frog a rather strange presentation. Because Cosmic Frog does a very good job through its components of communicating what's going to happen. You have these awesome plastic frogs and these big chunky terrain pieces and stuff's going to go down. And that's absolutely what happens. But, one of the things that I find so bizarre about Cosmic Frog is the fiction that starts the game is entirely about basically councils of dying gods. And they only mention the giant frogs near the end. It's That's like, right, okay, yeah. it, it's all about cosmology. Yeah. It, and these are the tools that the gods use. Off it, you go. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, something, something, the dawn of the universe, something, something, this god talks to that god about the necessity of creating a new earth, whatever. Okay, fine. This is all, I mean, it's all vaguely interesting, but it's all like the deep, deep backdrop to what's actually going on with the awesome frogs. It's not even, I don't even know that this is a criticism, but what I'm saying is, is that if you weren't already sold on the cosmic frogs, or if you didn't have a, a reasonable understanding about what was going on, the opening fiction does a very strange job of situating it. On the other hand, I think of a game like Dogs of War. Dogs, of, The Dogs of War rulebook is massive, and more than half of it is just fiction about all the houses that are the backdrop of what's going on. There, it's it it's weird because it's just so superfluous and, and, and strange. I've read all of it. It's kind of interesting, kind of, sort of. But none of that reaches the players, ever. Yeah, I'm wondering if they had, had thoughts of, like, this entire universe onto which build like many games, right? Because yeah. there's enough stuff there in Dogs of War and it's sort of like the preliminary, here's how the houses interact and now we're going to go off to all these different things. Well, but it's a straight, but it's a strange inversion of what's going on in Cosmic Frog, right? You are playing as the frogs in Cosmic Frog and they're just an afterthought. They're in, in the interior fiction. They're like, they show up near the end. It's like, by the way, summon the frogs. We're, we're going to go do some frogging. And we're like, all right, I am a frog now. Whereas in Dogs of War, it's actually kind of sort of, this is a bit overblown, but it's almost like a satire of armed conflict because the houses can't win any fights by themselves. The fact that there are houses fighting is entirely irrelevant to the fact that we as mercenary captains are knifing each other in the back, switching sides at any opportunity. Who they are doesn't matter. So the fact that most of the fiction in the game is about these irrelevant uh, noble houses, 
I find just very strange, which again is why I feel no problem giving zero sort of uh, uh, additional nuance and texture to who the houses are. I, when I explain the rules, I say we're merchandise companies, they're these houses, we don't care about them. And I'm wondering if that's because there are some cases where uh, because of bad mechanics or just bad design, sometimes they fall back on the theme to try to pull them through the game. I'm yeah. just wondering maybe that's you've been soured on it. And it's like, well, all they do is use that to to, you know, try to you know, wash over the really bad game. And now, so I'm just not going to care about it. I'm going to reveal these games for what they are. Just, <laughs> you know, just bad games and, and, and theme doesn't matter. I'm, I'm just, no, I, I, no, it's not that I think theme doesn't matter. That's the tragedy of it, right? I'm actually doing a bad job as a rules explainer or as a game presenter. Cause again, this is all about the stuff that isn't rules. This is, this is the, the stuff like game presenter is a strange term, but I really think it's appropriate for what a lot of people end up doing. Cause you're not just the rules explainer. You're presenting an entire package. You're trying to set the stage. It's almost like being a game master in a tabletop role playing game. Yes. Your players need to understand the rules mechanically, but they also need to have some sense of what's going on. And so in cosmic frog, I've got no problem telling people, we're devouring this dying earth. Nobody then asks, I will, I will, I will stress, could you tell me more about the divinities of this dying earth? Is there going to be a new earth afterwards? No, they're set with the frogs. They're good. In the same way, when I say dogs of war, we're mercenary companies fighting for these noble houses. No one's like, tell me more about these noble houses. Nah, nah, nah. They're just signing the checks. Yes. Tell me why there's dying stars inside the frogs. Yeah, no one's going to ask that. <laughs> I feel another reason why I need to do it too is because after a while, just saying, you know, you're trying to get victory points over and over again. <laughs> yeah, it's awfully tiring, right? It's Giving true. them a reason why they're doing this. And, you know, you know, why are we here? Why are we, you know, doing these particular actions and what order and what is the, what is the reason we're doing these interactions with the other players. And sometimes that, you know, sort of not only sometimes helps with the rules, but sort of, you know, keeps them, you know, gives them another goal other than now I'm going to get five more victory points. You're absolutely right. I do think though, just to sort of to, to cap off this discussion, and this is not defending my habit of omitting the theme. If you lean too heavily on the theme, sometimes people are then going to get disappointed. Uh, an example of this could be, uh, it's 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 the staid standard joke, but many of Reiner Kinesius games. If you start by explaining raw and spinning this thirty second yarn about the richness and depth of either Egyptian mythology or about the glories of the Egyptian Empire and the you know the early mid and late kingdom or whatever, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> I think that's setting bad expectations, and I think that that's not part of the meta rules for a reason. Similarly. Although I think it's, to go a little bit along the spectrum, if you're going to be teaching Tigris and Euphrates, I think it could do you a good job of saying, look, at a very, very high abstract level, this is about the rise and fall of dynasties and civilizations. Instead of saying, have you played Sid Meier's Civ? Well, this is just like that, <laughs> if you follow what I mean. Yes, I, those are two Reiner Kinesia games that are, are interesting, but I want you to tell me the theme behind Llama Dice, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Are you familiar with peyote? Although it's, it is interesting that we had this discussion about uh, theme on all these games, but when you break down like smaller games or party games, just the complete lack of theme yep. is is interesting as well. That's a good point. I mean, most uh, party games abandon the theme entirely. I, uh, maybe not most. No. Well, quite a few. Quite a few. Uh, that's one of the reasons why when it comes to large player count, relatively quick games, I quite like social deduction games because most of them still have some notion of theme that is even vaguely evocative of the player experience, right? This is a game, this is a story about paranoia where we feel paranoid, right? Because, but that's getting into a whole separate conversation about sometimes the mismatch of the story the game is telling and the sensation that it's inspiring in people. 
But anyway, no, you're entirely uh, entirely right. We, we talked about No Thanks. We talked about Fuji Flush. Those are entirely themeless by design. They're entirely abstract. I mean, Fantasy Realms... Why are we why are we talking about all the fillers we don't really like? Uh, fairy Tale, for example, there's kind of sort of a theme, but not really. No, it's just like a... a, a, a a wash theme across the, the yeah. artwork, yeah. right? Not that it's a party game, it's, but it is still of a, of a, of a filler weight game. And sometimes a theme could also, you know, help them get through the entire, like say if it's based on an IP and they've done a fantastic job of following like the whole arc or whatever, it sort of lets them follow along. It's like, oh, we're doing this now? That makes sense because this is what happened. And, right. You know what I mean? It sort of follows a fra- along. A, f- a framing device. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. No, and framing devices are often very, very handy for, for, to contextualize the rules, and so the rules hang together, but not, strictly speaking, part of the rules. Exactly. Well, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. That's going to do it for this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. Join us after the end, of, end credits for a further episode of Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon and Twitch. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Thank you for joining us once again for another episode of Swag Presents... Masterpiece Theater, this time featuring Too Fast, Too Furious, possibly the greatest sequel title in the history of human cinema. I, again, only have a small number of things to say. This was supposed to co-star originally Herr Dr. Vincent Diesel Esquire OBE, but he was not able to join by virtue of his commitments to starring in the singular Chronicles of Riddick. It's a good thing. I unabashedly adore the Chronicles of Riddick, so I'm very, very thankful that we were able to get that cinematic masterpiece as a result of his lack of participation. Second, the movie's climax sees the stars vault their car off of an invisible ramp, an impossible distance onto a boat. If this had featured the aforementioned grandee, it would have ruined all other movies to come after it. That said, the best thing about this film is the confident absurdity of its title. 12 out of 10. Agreed. I'm not sure if this is a sequel to to Fast and Furious or the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> it all was missing, you know, the little air horn at the end as it rocketed across the water into the boat. Once again, uh, I question Americans' uh, law enforcement and yet another entire section and and set up and building dedicated towards an unknown villain a crime he does crime he does crime i'm also beginning to suspect that agent frosted tips is not very good at his job i, I think you're right mm. i don't think he's actually the fbi agent at all <laughs> <laughs> but i think he's just passes himself off as one Mustang update. At some point, there is a fifth-generation Mustang that is crushed behind the rear wheels of a semi-truck, which I took as a personal affront. <gasps> How dare they? Thank you very much for joining us for this installment of Swag Presents Masterpiece Theater. Please join us next time, where we go international with Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. See you then. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. 
It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Comfortable. 